Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, and that's the scripture that we're going to read in just a moment. Uh, As we have been since January, we've been slowly studying different themes throughout the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, these stories of Jesus, and there's all sorts of different themes and ideas that have come up in there. So for the first few weeks, we talked about discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus, to be his apprentice, to be his, one of his learners, people that are learning to do life and be like Jesus? And, and then after that, we talked about uh, this theme of true religion. What does it mean to be uh, truly a human being who is following uh, what the Bible would say is good religion? It's not about performance, so much of it's about our heart and our heart posture. And uh, so we talked about that theme. And then last week, we started our third theme that we called Upside Down. And and what we're talking about in this is this way of Jesus' kingdom is really, in a lot of ways, upside down. It's different than the way we would naturally think to do things. So we talked last week about how Jesus had a terrible uh, PR team. He's talking about how, hey, here's my kingdom and uh, I'm going to die. And they're all like, no, you can't do that. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And we talked about um, which Jesus is it that you and I are following? Is it one made in our own imagination? Which Jesus do you like to pray to? Or are we praying to the Jesus that actually said, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die? His kingdom's very different and very upside down from what we'd imagine. And so we're going to continue that theme this morning. Specifically, uh, we've entitled this, this morning's message, Which Way is Up? Okay, so if this thing is upside down, maybe I need to think about which way I'm being invited to live. Maybe up is in a different direction than I thought. You know those, uh, when we did a lot of, I moved a lot when I was a kid, so I'm very familiar with moving boxes, and they all have the this side up kind of label on the box. You know what I'm talking about? And a lot of us have lived maybe with the box flipped another way. And so we're going to look at a story where Jesus's disciples are confused about which way is up. And they're going to have this argument, and Jesus is going to set them straight and, and teach them a little more about his upside-down kingdom that he's inviting them and us to live in. So let's read together Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37. It says this, After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him, and he said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child Like this, on my behalf, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you would give us clear vision this morning to see things the way you see things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, sift out our, and filter out our human perspective and that we would take on more and more God's perspective for what it looks like to live the way you have called us to live. And so we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be welcome in this place, that you'd be welcome in our own hearts, that you'd open our eyes to see and our ears to ear, hear and our, our minds to understand what it is you're teaching us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I wanna share a story as we get started. If you could put that first picture up on the screen, please. Uh, this is a story about a ship called the SS Eastland. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this story. A few of you might be. Um, it's, it's not particularly well known, uh, but uh, in July 24th, 1915, uh, there was a large, this is in Chicago, there was a large company outing for the day. Now, this is back in the day when you usually worked six days a week or at least five and a half days. And, and uh, to have an extra day off for this big company outing was a big deal. And, and they were going to load up. You, you bought tickets in advance, and this, giant, this big company uh, was going to be loading up all of their employees, their families, their friends, anyone who, who signed up to go onto all of these different steamships. And they were going to float out and roll out of the Chicago River, out into Lake Michigan, just about an hour's boat journey down to the coast of Indiana to, to kind of like their version of what we'd call like Coney Island or something like that. And, and, it, was, and it was this beautiful like parklands and amusement rides and, and just places to hang out and enjoy the day. This was a big deal in 1915 to get out of the heat of Chicago and, and go on, on this amazing trip. All you had to do was pay for your passage on the boat and everything else was paid for by the company for the day. And this is looked forward to every single year. And so people were loading up on the boats, and this morning in particular, they wanted to make sure they made the most of the day, so they got in early, and the SS Eastland was one of the first boats that was going to be filled up, and they all began to pile onto the boat, and more and more people filled up onto the boat, so they had to move to the far side of the boat, opposite the dock where everyone was loading up on, and, and, and suddenly, as they realized there's more people on this side of the boat, the boat slightly began to tip and, and so to compensate people began to move the other way and then it began to tip the other way so they began to move back and people are on the top deck on the lower decks all throughout this boat getting comfortable and they see this boat starting to rock extremely hard until suddenly it flipped it completely capsized it completely capsized Everyone, as the boat, they realized it was going to capsize, it was on the bottom floors, they rushed to try and get up to the top to get off of the boat. It was absolute chaos. People were shoving each other out of the way, climbing up the steps as high as they could. And in the end, in the confusion, what they thought was up became down, and what was down became up, because ironically, the people who were shoved at the bottom or stuck at the bottom, they were able to get them out through the bottom of the boat. And the people that tried to escape through the top lost their lives. 844 people lost their lives that day. It's actually more than died at the Titanic. Surprisingly, it's less known, but far more people lost their lives. 
And I found such irony in this story that those who tried to save their lives by going up were the first and the greatest casualties in the day. But those who found themselves seemingly stuck at the bottom, ready for their lives to be over, surprisingly found life and found an escape. This tragedy, I think, really helps paint the picture of what I want to describe and frame for us this morning, because it's the problem that you and I face in our daily lives. It's the problem that the disciples faced in this passage that we read. It's the problem of a success culture. It's the problem that, and you might be thinking, what do you mean? What's wrong with success? And here's what I mean by success culture. We, we might define success differently, but essentially, like the disciples in our own ways, in our own lives, in our own sphere of influence, in the in kind of the realm of society that we're a part of, we all have a sense of wrestling with what it means to be the greatest, what it means to go up and get to the top instead of being pushed down to the bottom like those that tried to push their way to the top of the boat, we often put others down in order to elevate ourselves. Or we've been put down so others could elevate themselves. And it looks different for different people. Sometimes in in family, we find ourselves asking the question, how do I be the greatest mom or dad? A lot of guilt and shame associated with that often. In school, how do I appear to be the greatest student? Or maybe that's not necessarily the definition of success. Maybe it's not to be the greatest student, but to be the coolest student. How do I frame uh, my life on social media, for example, to appear to be great or make myself look great? How, How do I, in my career, orient my life around climbing that corporate ladder as quickly, as fast as I can? How can I network with the right people, the people in the room that have influence and power? How can I kind of cater to them or curry favor with them so I'm in with them? Because, you know, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. How many people like us have moved to the suburbs or West Milford's a sort of, West Milford is sort of suburbs, sort of rural. It's kind of like right in between a little bit. How many of us move to places like this because they're like, I'm done with the the rat race. I I want a little quieter pace of life, something that slows down. But our definition of success, it doesn't go away. It just changes. Now it's about comfort. Now it's about having more material possession. Now it's about a better house, a better boat, whatever I can do to offer a better education to my kids. We're very uh, success driven. How can I get more extracurricular activities into my kids' lives? Because that will set them up for greater success when they go to apply for college and things like that. However you define success, whatever your vision of is success, there's some sense of going up, of becoming greater, of of having some kind of leg up, usually on someone else. Does anyone resonate with that? I tend to resonate with that. Now, what we don't realize is that when we are trying to go up in that sense, to be the greatest in in the world, we are really going down, much like the folks who lost their lives on board the SS Eastland. For example, when when people ask how we are doing, what's, what's one of the things that we often say? We say, how are you doing? Fine or good? And then usually what's the next thing we say? What is it? What about you? Okay, yeah, if you're that nice and you think about other people. 
If they ask us about what like, our life is characterized by, do we often say, really busy right now? Is that, you know what I'm saying? Really busy. It, 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 it seems like the typical answer that we give. The, and it's as if to say, it's kind of like a badge of honor. Good, super busy. Oh, good, good, I'm glad you're busy. And we're kind of like, approve it. That's great, I'm glad you're really busy. I'm glad you have like no margin for life and you're totally at max capacity with your calendar and your schedule. Like we, we love to affirm that, don't we? Gluttons for punishment we are. I, I love what Eugene Peterson noted about that, about this mindset of like busy is better and busy means successful. That's good. You're doing better than I am. I'm not that busy. You're busy. That's great. Eugene Peterson noted when he, when he goes to a doctor, he, he would be a bit concerned if he uh, sat there in the waiting room and he noticed the doctor's not seeing patients right now. He's taking a break. He's got his feet up on his desk. He's reading a book. I'd be concerned if that doctor was a good doctor or not, Eugene Peterson says. Wouldn't you? Like, why, why is he not seeing patients? Why is he not busy? But we go to a place where you can barely get an appointment. You've got to book it months in advance. We're like, man, this person must be good. They're successful because they're busy. Now, sure, that connects also to high demand because people think well of them. Absolutely. But there's a sense of busy is better. At the same time, though, Did you know burnout rates are higher than ever, especially post-pandemic? Employee burnout, this is a survey that was just done earlier this year. Employee burnout right now is a global concern. There was a survey of 1,000 respondents, 77% say they have experienced burnout at their current job. 91% say that unmanageable stress or frustration impacts the quality of their work. And 83% say burnout can negatively impact personal relationships. How many of you feel that stress in your life affecting all these areas of your life? The American Psychological Association also recently reported that three out of five employees experience work-related stress because busy equals success. If I'm going to be great, I need to say yes to everything. At the same time all this is going on, consumer debt from things like credit cards, it rose in 2022 to an all-time high, $15.31 trillion as people paid and purchased things for more of life's comforts with money they did not necessarily have. And in our pursuit of greatness, For not only ourselves, but for our children, extracurricular involvement has soared to new levels for our kids. At the same time that that's happening, mealtimes with families have been dropping from about 90 minutes 50 years ago down to about 10 minutes on average. Consistent with family meals, by the way, it's heavily linked. Consistent family mealtimes are heavily linked positively with a decrease in adolescents experimenting with premarital sex, drugs, alcohol, other negative influences and addiction in their formative years. So as we seek success, it's got this knock-on effect in every area of our life that's actually making us less successful. You see the irony in that. 
All of this to say, we're searching for greatness in a variety of ways, whether it's career, material possessions, assuring our future legacy through our children. We, we are searching for greatness. We're seeking to go up, but the statistics seem to show that we are going down. And this leads us to Jesus's invitation to his disciples that we just read in Mark chapter 9 to us today, that if you want to go up, you need to go down. And Jesus defines greatness very differently than you and I and the world do today. And I think this is not even something that doesn't happen in the church. We say yes to everything in church because I want to be successful in the church. I want to know what this church, if you've been around churches for uh, more than five, ten years, you want to know what does this church view as good, i.e. successful? What does it take to win in this church? I'm wired that way, so I want to know how do I win in whatever situation I'm in. I'm very type A like that. But success looks different for us. What does it mean to have relationships, to belong here? What does it mean to know a lot in this environment, to understand, like depending on what your motivation is? And Jesus is calling all of us, whether we're in church, out in the world, whatever life is, however we are seeking and straining to find success, Jesus is inviting and calling us all to say, hey, that way's not up. Let me show you which way is up. Jesus defines greatness very differently than you and I do in this world. And so I want to highlight two ways that he defines greatness from this passage in a very different way than you and I do. So let's jump into this. The first one here is Jesus is is saying this, one, to find greatness, serve everyone else. Very simply, to find greatness, serve everyone else. Now, I want to say two things about this before we get into a little bit of context of of the passage to understand what's going on here. Um, When I say serve everyone else, what I am not talking about is a self-seeking kind of service to others. We talked about that a little bit when we were talking about what true religion is. Some of us are seeking affirmation, acceptance. We, We have an idea of success, especially if we're in church, that if I do a lot, if I serve a lot, then people are going to accept me, affirm me. I'm going to be viewed as successful. That's for selfish gain, or, or we're looking to serve other people because of what they might give us later in life, or we're looking to serve, to get approval, to get love, to get affirmation. All of those things are self-seeking versions of service and not what I'm talking about when I say that to find greatness, we need to serve everyone else. This is coming from a place of love where we say, I could get nothing in return ever from this person or these people, and I'm okay with that. That's, what lo- that's when we're serving out of love. So I just wanted to put that uh, disclaimer in there as we dive into this. So to find greatness, we need to serve everyone else. Just a little bit of context of what's going on. Jesus has come back with his disciples to Capernaum. This is one of his home bases. Uh, he, he really uh, landed and found home in Capernaum. So he was probably staying in a house that he'd stayed in many times before. He was probably staying in a, a place where he knew the family, uh, he, he knew the children, he knew the extended family, he knew the town, he knew the neighborhood. The, he, Jesus was just one of the people. 
He was part of this community. So he's coming back to this place and, and they'd been on a journey, out on a ministry journey and he, and he could hear his 12 closest disciples kind of bickering on their journey. It's like you got kids in the backseat on a long car ride and you're like, if you two don't stop, I'm gonna turn this car around or I'm gonna pull over or something like that. And Jesus is a lot nicer than us and, and he waits until they get where they're going. He's, what were you guys talking about? And they go, oh, he heard that? This is awkward. Well, Jesus, seeing as you're establishing this kingdom, you're going to be the, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the, the new ruler of the world. We've read our Old Testament. We know what the Messiah is supposed to do. We were just trying to figure out what like our pecking order in your new kingdom is. Like, how's this going to work? Like, is Peter in charge of all of us? Like, is he not the boss of us? Do I get to like be in charge? And, and they're all, they're having this like, are, you know, when you like get into some kind of situation, it's like really exciting. Anyone ever been a part of a startup, a uh, startup company or a church plant? And it's super exciting, but you see the potential that's happening here and you go, hey, what's my kind of like hierarchy here with the other people I'm, I'm with? Like, do, am I Am I better than them? Am I greater than them? Like, who's, am I in charge? Because I really don't want to report to them. Like, you know what I'm saying? So this is all going on. And, and, and they're arguing about this in another sense because they're coming from an incredibly oppressed, impoverished community. Uh, the Jewish people are, are generally speaking, especially where he is in Galilee, Jesus doing most of his ministry, they're not well off. They're living meal to meal just as much as they can, catching a few fish. Maybe if they're lucky, they have enough that they could sell a couple to get some other things. Um, it's, it's really like barely eking it out. They're heavily taxed by uh, the Jewish temple institution. They're heavily taxed by the Roman Empire. It's a very oppressive environment. So it's a very uh, exciting, almost fantasy-like thing, dream-like thing that's happening for these 12 guys. Like, this is the Messiah. We're going to be great. We're going to rule. We're not going to have to deal with being oppressed. We're not going to have people telling us what to do, asking things of us. We get to ask things of other people now. And they're going, like we were singing last week, I'm going to see a victory. They just start going like, we're in charge now. Now we just got to figure out which one of us is in charge of all the other ones because then we can be the greatest of the greatest. You see where their mind's going. And Jesus would once again flip things on its head, flip their definition of success, of what it meant to be greatest, especially for those who felt like they had been under someone's thumb, not just in their lifetime, but in their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents' lifetime. What would this look like? Jesus says to them in the midst of all of that, here, come over here. And he sits down. And whenever Jesus sits down, you know he's about to teach. He's about to give some instruction that's not just kind of off the cuff. This is critical teaching that you must listen to. Jesus, usually what they would do in the synagogue is they would read standing up and then down, they would sit down to teach. And so Jesus sits down, that's really important. He's about to teach them something that is critically important for life in his kingdom. And he says to them, if you want to be the greatest, if you want to rise to the heights that you are dreaming about in my kingdom, you need to become everyone's servant. Can you say that again, Jesus? I thought you said I had to be everyone's servant. 
That couldn't have been what you said because we're supposed to be in charge. And if I am serving everyone, that's gonna give the wrong impression. That's gonna make it look like I'm not the greatest. You ever feel that? Like you know, like you're happy to serve in Jesus' name, but you just want everyone else to know that you're above this. Just speaking honestly, speaking out of my own experience. This, this Greek word for servant here, it, it's a word that literally means a table waiter. Now, some of us tip really well when we go to restaurants, but how many of you have observed a waiter or waitress at a west, restaurant uh, just being treated horribly? Can you imagine? Now, now, now multiply that by like a thousand times worse, and that's probably getting close to the, the Greek meaning of the word. Because this is the person who's got a, you know, a slave or a servant has to like, you came in from a long journey, you haven't like, they don't bathe regularly, your feet are disgusting because you're wearing open-toed sandals, who knows what's going on with your toenails, and, and they've got to clean that. And, and, and societally, if we're talking about social status, you, you that they're a servant. Don't, don't rub shoulders with the servants, that's beneath if they're cleaning my feet, there's a reason they have to clean my feet. They should be a little bit ashamed of their social status. So this is, this is not a glamorous term. This isn't something where, where Jesus is saying, like, hey, you have to be everyone's servant. Like, we use the term in church nowadays, like, servant leadership. Because it, like, makes the term servant, like, a little, like, softer and more palatable for all of us pastors who can be a little bit egotistical if we're not careful. There's servant leadership. It's still leadership. And Jesus doesn't say servant leadership. He just says, wash everyone's feet, wait on tables. Can you imagine walking in to, to a church that really like was radical like this and, and you could not figure out who was in charge because you're like, I, I don't know. Like, you know what I'm saying? You're like, I don't know. Like they're all kind of doing the grunt work. Now, sometimes everyone just does the grunt work when you're like planting a new church or a new campus. This is kind of the reality. But, uh, but, but imagine what that culture Jesus is trying to create here. You come into Jesus's kingdom and you're like, I'm not really sure who's in charge here because the guy who says he's the king of the universe and he's in charge of all this just died a, a traitor's death on a cross and was treated very, very scandalously. It's a, like even Roman citizens, they wouldn't even dream of crucifying their worst enemy. Roman citizens. You wouldn't, you wouldn't dare crucify a Roman citizen. That, oh, that's, no, we don't do that. That's, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But someone who basically is subhuman, yeah, we'll crucify them. Just get them out of the way. So, so we've got this person in, in the world of that day, the society and culture who's saying, yeah, this subhuman person is in charge. His closest followers, if you know church history, like they pretty much were almost all crucified. So all of these subhumans are kind of like running this thing. They're less than the scum of the earth. There's got to be someone else who's in charge because it can't be them. This is the framework and how radical what Jesus is proposing here is. Because right before that is the passage we talked about last week. I'm going to be rejected. The very people that I came to lead, they're going to turn me away. I'm going to be killed. No one's going to like me. This is what it means to serve. And then it's followed up with this, the Greek word, everyone. This is a very complicated word when translated into English. Are you ready for this? The Greek word, serve everyone, it means in English, are you ready for this? 
everyone. Not just your friends. Don't just serve the people that you like. People that maybe can give something back one day. People who are nice to you. It literally means all, everyone. No one is excluded from this statement. Y'all love your coworkers. I know you do. That person in that cubicle three way that is just, they just get under your skin. I, I hear you. I hear you. You know that, that neighbor down the street who like the music's never turned down. You've called the police you don't know how many times. And it just doesn't go away. There's a domestic violence dispute. Again, at this place over here, like, oh man, these people, they can't get it together. And their call is to serve everyone. Yeah, well, what if they think I'm like a pushover? Well, that's their problem. I'm not saying be a human doormat here and ignore your limits and go beyond what your capacity is. But, but what I am saying, because we, we just talked about how busy and overly busy we are, but what I'm saying is, is when we are positioning self out of a success culture that is driven by status and you gotta know the people who have influence and power, what Jesus is saying is give all that up and be the person who has the least power in the room. Now, that's scary because, number one, we become vulnerable when we do that. I don't particularly love that experience of feeling that vulnerable. Do you? No? Okay, some of you are being honest this morning. A couple of you shaking your head saying no. But yeah, I don't love that. It's really hard and it's really scary and it requires for me a tremendous amount of trust of Jesus to know that this, it's just like the SS Eastland, like, is this really the way up and the way out? Because that's, that's not where the stairs are going. Everything in our culture is set up for you to go in the, almost the exact opposite way of how Jesus is calling us to live. And it is this countercultural invitation from Jesus to live in a radically different way where we become a servant of everyone. And Jesus says that is how you become great in my kingdom. I love the, I'll just throw in the story here real quick. Um, the, the early church modeled this so well in the first few centuries. Uh, the bishop who, uh, so, so in our denomination, we have a district superintendent who's basically in charge of all of, he kind of oversees kind of loosely. It's a little bit different than in like a, say a Catholic church or another denomination. Um, but they have like a loose kind of authority over all of the churches in, in the district, right? They'd be kind of like a bishop in, in, in how it's used sometimes in other, uh, in other traditions. But, but the bishops in the first few centuries, so the super important person in the church, right? And, and whatever uh, church meeting they were presiding over in the first few centuries, usually there's a chair on the stage and uh, some older uh, traditions kind of have this. There'll be a chair there and the bishop sits there on the platform or by the altar or whatever the church setup was in those first few centuries. They would sit there in that chair. So you knew this person's really important in our, in our church context. This is where the bishop sits. And do you know what the bishop would do whenever someone who was poor, ever someone who was a very low status, anyone, even if it was their first time in one of these services, whenever someone like that came in, do you know what the bishop would do? 
they would get out of their chair and go out of their way to welcome them and come and give them a place to sit, a place of honor in the meeting is what they did in the first few centuries. Can you imagine if we were like, like there's like celebrities coming to churches all the time right now, right? Like imagine, you know, like Justin Bieber shows up. Um, his, uh, I think his wife actually, before, before they were married, showed up to a church I was pastoring at once. It was like this where her and her mom like showed up. And it was, it was a very, like I had no clue who they were. So like, it, because it's just not my thing. Um, but other people were like, oh my gosh, do you see who's here? Do you see him? Look over there. And, and, but there was such an interest in we need to welcome them. We need to give them a place of honor. We need to, and it's nothing against them as people, Right? But the kingdom's so upside down that we should be seeing the poorest person come in the room that doesn't look like, man, I don't even know if you should be here. Your breath smells like something you've had too much of. Something's going on. You may still be high. I don't know. Like, can you just... And, and, and the bishop, imagine, imagine I were to go, and, and I, just, I was actually thinking about this, doing this in the future, the first time I heard this story, is like, imagine we had instructions for the connectors, like, hey, if someone that looks like, like they're an absolute mess, maybe this would be like a terrible like, uh, insult to someone. They're just like, I just got out of bed and didn't shower. I'm like, <laughs> but imagine if they were like, hey, you need to meet the pastor, or you need to meet the bishop, who's ever here, who's ever presiding. And, and it was their job to come and personally give them a seat of honor. And then someone who's like super famous or celebrity in the world, like, hey, how are you doing? Find a seat. Amen. How, what would that say about how we see power? About how we see greatness? What is Je- this is what Jesus is saying. If you want to become great, you need to become everyone's servant and stop jockeying for position. So can we find greatness by, by serving everyone else? And this leads into the second invitation from Jesus of how we find greatness. We need to find greatness by lowering our status. Lowering our status. This is so American. Right? What does it say right in, in the Declaration of Independence? We believe that people need to have the right to life, liberty, and Thank you, history nerd. Appreciate that. That's actually what it said before. It said private property before it said uh, uh, pursuit of happiness. And then people said, that's unrealistic because we don't really want everyone to own property because then they can vote. That was a little bit of a sinister thing that happened behind the scenes, but real, real history talk. So they're like, let's say pursuit of happiness because it's kind of actually unattainable and everyone will keep chasing it. And that's what we've been doing ever since. I appreciated that little history moment there. Um, but, but we need to lower, lower our status and this feels very wrong. Does this feel very wrong to you? I need to create a secure future for me. I need to create a secure future for my family. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. The book of Proverbs is full of the righteous man passing down an inheritance to his children's children. We're not saying don't be wise with money, don't steward things well, uh, but, but I think what we live and what we experience in the Western church is, is far more than passing down something that's righteous and good and healthy and is far more into the realm of excess. We can talk about that later if you have problems with that, I would be happy to. Um, 
But, but here's why I think this statement, I'm, I'm, I'm very sure of this statement, is because of what Jesus does next. He says, listen, I don't want you to just change your behavior and start like they're tripping over them. You imagine Peter and James and they're tripping over each other to, no, after you, no, really, after you, no, really, after you. And they're, they're just tripping over themselves to try and like serve the other. Now he's saying like, I really wanna bring this home because this is less about your behavior and more about a heart posture. And Jesus is gonna take this even deeper. He says, your posture needs to change. And he brings over a child. Now, this isn't weird because uh, Jesus, again, this is like his home. He's probably stayed in this house. He probably knew this child like from the moment they were born. They've grown up around each other. This is probably someone he knows really well. And he brings a kid over. Hey, come here, come here. Can you help me teach these, these goofs a lesson? Can you help me? I'm sure he was a little more gracious than that. But like, hey, I want you to teach all these grownups. Can you help me with that for a minute? Now, the, the text specifically says a young child. The Greek word here is specifically referring to a child that would have been uh, like seven years old or younger. Uh, and, and if you know anything about children under the age of seven, it, it, it is sometimes appreciated that they are seen and not heard. Does it feel that way sometimes? Let's just be honest. And I'm like, oh, that's mean. No, just be honest. I'm not saying that's right, but like sometimes it's like, can you please leave me alone? Can you please leave me alone? And, and this was the same back then, uh, especially then because they couldn't really help with much in terms of fishing or mending nets or doing it. They were starting to learn a little bit, but under the age of, of seven, in, in, in terms of like utility and function and great success and moving things forward, when you're under seven in this culture especially, you're kind of useless, and I don't say that to be mean. I say, like, you can't serve a productive function. Think about children under the age of seven. And just like my, I have two, two daughters. I have a four-year-old, 21-month-old, 20, 20-month-old. Uh, and and um, she's going to be two this summer. And, man, when you want to talk about unproductive. You want to talk about inefficient. You, you want to talk about as far away from success building and greatness and hitting my to-do list and getting things done around the house or at work or whatever, when they're introduced into the environment, all bets are off. When children are introduced to the environment, we can either become control freaks or we can hold things loosely. You feel that with little kids? Do you feel that even if you don't have kids and you're around people that have kids and you're like, woo, this is fun? <laughs> now hear me, because this is, this is not a message for parents. This is a message for everyone in the church because Jesus is talking to a bunch of guys who most likely don't have children right now at this stage, and many of them never did. This is for the church community, the disciples of Jesus to hear. Jesus says these inefficient not able to produce anything. We're not even sure what's going on in their brain half the time. If you can welcome them, you have welcomed me. You want to talk about greatness. If you can posture yourself in such a way that you can welcome a child, a little child, you are on the path to greatness in the kingdom. Here's what welcome means, this word uh, deketai. In the Greek, it is a posture of receiving 
with generosity and love. It is a posture and of patient embrace, of genuineness, of openness. It is a posture of receiving someone into your very presence. You ever just sat with a child and just tried to be very attentive and present with them? I have to put my phone in another room, if I'm honest, to do that. It's very difficult. To just be present with a child and just gaze, just listen, and it's like, we're not getting anything done here, and it's just all over the place. You know what I'm saying, right? But Jesus is saying, if you can have that kind of generous, present posture, that's welcoming. That's the Greek word welcoming here. If you can do that with a child, you are actually welcoming my very presence among you. If you want to be great, you're going to have to let go to a certain extent, maybe for some of us a lot. You're going to have to let go of the type A. You're going to have to let go of the control. You're going to have to let go of the efficiency thing. You're going to have to let go sometimes of being productive in order to welcome little children. See, Jesus doesn't necessarily say you're great if you welcome little children, but what he's digging at here is you need to serve everyone, and then he's saying you need to come much lower than you think you need to just by serving everyone. If you can come down to the level of, there were a lot of people that were the least of these, including the poor, the marginalized, people that were uh, foreigners that were living in Israel. They were all considered the least of these. Jesus talks about different ones of them in different places. But the most least of these were children. And Jesus says about all these different groups in various places in the gospel, if you can welcome them, you can welcome me. You are welcoming me actively. Hear me on this. The gift of Jesus' presence through children is so profound here. Imagine flipping the script of how we see our worship gatherings. I kind of mentioned this last week. Kids are getting antsy. There's like a whole slew of kids over here in the first two rows this morning. It can feel a little distracting, right? Yeah. Kids like... Ah, just making noises, all kinds of things. They're just making noises. I don't know what's going on. And, and sometimes we, we can run the risk of going, oh, that kid needs to be quiet. Or why don't they take them out? Or, or something like that. And, and did you know what the irony of this is? Is The irony is, is I'm trying to experience Jesus right now. Take that kid out. And the very thing that Jesus says welcomes his presence, we're actually trying to dismiss from our presence. If you want to be great, you have to reorder your ideas about productivity, efficiency. You need to lower your status to be with the people who have zero power in the room. Can you do that? That is the recipe for greatness in my kingdom. To find greatness, you must lower your status. I want to conclude with this. The, the thing that is very interesting about this SS Eastland tragedy is, to me, how little it's known versus the Titanic. Isn't that interesting? How many of you knew about the SS Eastland when I brought it up? Like two, three? Did I, I think I got that right. Just a handful. I really didn't know about it. 
But, but here, this is, this is even so uh, typical of the same cultural thing we've been talking about this morning. See, the Titanic was the big shiny thing out on the open sea. Everyone knew about the Titanic. It was glitzy, it was popular. It was expensive. It ate up our dollars. And man, if something eats up our dollars, we're going to know about it. Because money is power, is greatness. It's, cult, it's our currency, literally and socially. Thanks, I didn't have that in my notes. That was good. But the SS Eastland, it was you know, an older steamship, and it kind of just it happened in the Chicago River. It was still above. It's not like thousands of feet below the sea. You, can, it was, you could still see the bottom of it when it was flipped. But, but here's the thing. When they, when they talk about car accidents, they say the most accidents happen closest to home, right? And I was thinking about that in terms of this and, and, and what we were talking about this morning. And I think for us, you know, it's really easy to pick out the big, obvious, you know, moral failings or, or these issues we need to work on in the church and all, all these kinds of things right there. But, but I think it's the things that happen closest to home that actually derail us the most. Things with our children, things with the least of these, things that are people in our neighborhood that we really don't want to have included in the serve everyone category. I think often we're sitting around and there's our neighbors, the people at ShopRite, at Three Roads Deli, all over the place here, and we're going, yeah, can I just skip the serving them part? And, and we puff ourselves up, make ourselves great in different ways. Most accidents happen closest to home. The very innocuous ways we overlook people, we find ourselves posturing, we're missing out on the very presence of Jesus, and we're actually not going up, we're going down. So I want to give you a question as we close here. Where in your life have you confused up with down in terms of Jesus' kingdom? Where have you confused your direction in your life? You thought you've been going up in your life this whole time, but after the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you this morning, you've realized you've actually been going down and you need to turn around. So I'm gonna invite the worship team up and I wanna invite you to just reflect for a minute before we take communion. How is the Holy Spirit inviting you to change direction this morning? Might be different for all of us. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak and we just want to give you some space to listen to you. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.